Sci-Fi for Me presents Jason Hunt and Timothy Harvey. This is the H2O Podcast. Oh, look at that. We've got a pretty bump shot. No, no. Isn't let's nice? let's savor the bump shot while we've got it. Because, you know, how often do I fight <laughs> that <laughs> camera? Yeah. Uh, so there we are, folks. You can see the entire studio there. If you are listening to the podcast in audio form, you're missing out. So on one of the two cameras that are cooperating tonight. <laughs> well, we have. Let's see. We've got three that are working. There's one that's being temperamental still, um, and it's the one pointed toward me, which is usually the case. So I don't get my close up. That's <laughs> yeah, right. Well, write a write a sternly worded letter to Mr. Demille. Yes. Yes, a sternly worded letter to Mr. DeMille. I Dear sir, I, I should like to face a complaint. <laughs> I walked in. We were we were looking in thrift stores for mm-hmm. bookshelves over the weekend. Yeah, uh-huh. And I came across a Sony Mavica digital still camera. Oh, okay. That uses the A drive discs. Sure, right, yeah. You know, and it slides into the side, mm-hmm. and you, yeah. you know, I mean, it's this big bulky thing. And I remember using them uh, mm-hmm. when I was when, it, when it, we were first into audiovisual stuff. When those things first came out, that was the camera that everybody was using. And uh, I almost, almost, almost got it, but it didn't have a battery in it. And I thought, eh, eh I don't know. I uh, so I. From time to time, we'll go down to the West Bottoms in Kansas City, which is the old industrial district. For those of you who don't know Kansas City, this is where the old warehouses. Uh, it's down by the river. Um, it used to be when Kansas City used to be a lot more of a port town. Mm-hmm. Um, there was quite a bit of stuff happening down in the West Bottoms. Now it is where they have the haunted, the Kansas City's uh, rather highly praised haunted houses. Yes, uh, we've filmed a lot of stuff down in the West Bottoms. It's a great location for vintage buildings. Um, and it's actually that's that's uh, cattle country. Oh right? yeah, that's where oh, all yeah. of the cattle came through on the railroad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean it's a it's a really fantastic historic district. There's also a lot of great vintage uh, and thrift store shops down there in the West yeah. Bottoms um, that are usually the first weekend of the month, uh, the first Friday celebration uh, here in Kansas City. Every month is always really big, but a lot of them are open every weekend. There is a photograph on our Instagram account. Uh, Mindy and I went, and it was the first time I'd been down there in I don't know how long. Mm-hmm. Because now that I'm married to somebody that I actually like to spend time with, we're actually spending time going out and doing things. And, what um, madness is this? And, and I know, right? <laughs> and so we we went down to the West Bottoms. And it, if you go back and look, oh, I don't know how far back this was maybe three or four weeks uh we found we found uh, a darth vader helmet yeah, yeah. with the chest piece there it's is all together um, as one i can't so remember the name the, the shop itself isn't there because unfortunately 
Um, some of them move around the West Bottoms. They, they move from one location to another. Yeah. Um, some of them are there for a few years and they go away and a new one pops up. There was a, this was a couple of years ago, there was a full-size Darth Vader, like mm. six and a half feet tall. Sure. The whole suit. I mean, everything. And it was perfect. Huh. And I, look, I looked at it and I was like, yeah, this is not going to be cheap. And it didn't have a price tag on it. Uh, yeah. And, if you have to ask, you can't afford it. that particular it, right? shop um, was all very high-end uh, vintage antique stuff. So mm. uh, I was expecting, I, I didn't even ask what it would cost. But you, I found in one of, the, one of the stores down there a, I want to say it would have been early 80s, uh, one of the smaller, and I say smaller, it means, you know, it's like two feet by about a foot video cameras. Oh, right. The ones right. that you actually put the tapes into. Yeah. Uh, side loaders. Yeah. And... Would that be one of the professional TV cameras yeah, yeah. or the or the handy cam, the big camcorder things? That um, I think it was one of the professional ones, if, if I'm remembering yeah. the, the model. Um Ugly thing. I mean, you know, these are not. Pretty, yeah, they usually were. They were. These are not pretty pieces of technology. Uh, and one of the best things I bought. I, I have bought vintage cameras in the West Bottoms. I've bought uh, vintage typewriters. I mean, this this older technology stuff is designed really well. Sure. And it's beautiful, beautiful work. Uh, and I kept looking at it, going, I completely do not need this thing. <laughs> it is ugly as sin. And yet part of me really wants to buy it. It could be our new studio camera <laughs> to replace these stupid webcams oh, that aren't no, working. Oh, God, I mean, these things are terrible. This is standard definition, shooting to tapes that were, yeah. you know, stuff you can't even, I don't even know if you, you can find these things anymore. Uh, but it's fascinating, the stuff that shows up down there. There's comic books show up down there. Um, a lot of great, uh, depending on the store, you can find like old model kits. Mm -hmm. uh, the Jupiter 7 model oh, yeah. kit shows up from time to time down there. These are like unopened things. These are things that, um, and not the, there's been a whole bunch of reproductions of these yeah. model kits in the last, I'd probably say five, five, right. ten years. This is like the earlier stuff. This, this is stuff, like the first the run stuff. stuff. You're kind of going, oh, that's really cool. Uh, there is a shop in my hometown, Irving, right. Texas. It's called Wild Bill's Hobby Shop. Mm -hmm. And it is floor to ceiling model kits. Okay. And the aisles are about two foot. <laughs> and it's yeah. a tiny place, but it is packed. And for a, for a very long time, their big claim to fame, they were the place to go for any kind of remote control stuff. Oh, okay. Sure. They even had a track behind the shop. So you you go to Wild Bills and you could race your your remote mm -hmm. control cars yeah. and whatnot. And I have found in that shop vintage original kits that are you won't be able to find you there you can't find them anywhere right, else. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know, the the Universal Monsters statue right. yeah, yeah. Th figures. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, Spock shooting the tentacle alien. Yeah, they had one yeah. of those. They used, to, they used I mean, to have all that. sorts of things. Yeah, it's it's a great shop. Wild Bill's Hobby Shop in Irving, Texas. You my, go uh, check that out. My grandparents, my dad's folks, uh, passed away several years ago, but uh, they used to run a hobby shop in. And that's a phrase you don't hear much anymore. The little yeah. hobby shops uh, in Decorah, Iowa, a little college town, and beautiful place. And they, uh, it was also a, the, the top level 
was a uh, hobby store. So you'd go in there and you would find everything from model train stuff, uh, model kits, uh, severed doll heads, <laughs> row upon row of little... Because you could assemble, you could build any kind of doll you want, want out of yeah. all these parts. But that was one of like, my earliest memory. It was just like, it's an entire row of body parts. My, <laughs> my grandmother, my mother's mother, collected dolls. Mm-hmm. And she had... I don't know, 150, 200 dolls mm. in a room. <laughs> and you'd walk into this room. And all the very, eyes would follow you. Very small you. bedroom. And <clears throat> they lined the walls, and they were on the bed, and they were on the dresser, and they were in the shelves, and they were all around, and it was just like dolls skin everywhere. Your would just crawl in one You didn't piece. see... Any bare wall surface, it was all dolls. Yeah, and, the, and, and these, some of these were ancient. Oh, yeah, sure. Because she was, you know, she passed away when she was 95. Mm. Um, yeah, it's... Yeah, I, the, the, the model section and the, tra- and the model train section were my favorite parts of it. Uh, because, of course, uh, the majority of the time I spent there, I was a small kid. Uh, but the downstairs where my dad, um, or my grandfather's... Um, uh, repair shop was and he basically mm. was a zenith repair oh yeah man. zenith televisions and uh zenith uh zenith did tvs that did radios uh they did computers for a little while in the early days of personal computers yeah. uh, never really took off there um but of course it was all this great technology and this was the 70s guys i mean so the technology <laughs> you know certainly not high tech now but it's still very very cool and just a huge array of just all these cool things and this of course was back in the day that you repaired you took your TV in to get fixed, yeah. uh, because if you swapped out a couple of pieces, they would, you know, work for another decade. Uh, the that was first... back when they were made to last, not to be replaced. Well, and I think that that, that certainly, um, you know, there's a huge difference between watching, uh, say, Star Trek Discovery on uh, my, and I watch most things on my computer because I've got a 27 inch screen, but through college I was watching Next Generation. The first couple of years in college on a black and white. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. I had <laughs> we had we had, had the little we had the little four inch black and white screen that had the radio in it and oh, stuff, uh, the little portable uh-huh. thing. Um, we've been vamping a little bit to give people time to get here. Speaking of stuff, let's mention uh, that we have arranged for a discount mm-hmm. for people to get when you go to superherostuff.com. You enter the promo code sci-fi for me 10 yep. and you can get um, a 10% discount on everything there. And that can be used in combination with other stuff. Mm-hmm. Thomas in the chat says, I don't think this technology thing will last. The internet is just a fad. Well, one can hope. You know, uh, uh, here's a here's a chilling thought. One of the, and we talked about this a little bit over on um, uh, Tartar Sauce. But when in when you get into the Virgin line and the the new the the BBC uh, past Doctor Adventures, there's a whole. Uh, it was, I think this was still the, yeah, it was definitely the BBC run, uh, Eighth Doctor run. There's a world where the internet. Uh, where basically everyone lives forever, but they're remembered basically by a kind of their social media. Oh. So when you die, you are resurrected by the memories other people have of you. Oh. So by the time a few generations of you have been reborn, the re- you, you are 
not the person you were when you died in the first body. Um, the it's called the remote, and basically they're 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 bombarded by all this information constantly to the point where they actually start to lose their sense of identity. And they're shock troops in this war. That's part of the the underlying theme of of the eight, this particular run of the Eighth Doctor books. Um, but it's kind of a terrifying thought when you look at um, the influence that. <laughs> Social media has, although certainly I think there's there's amount of of blowback in that. Looking at, you know, yeah, people not going okay. Well, that's that's all. Well, this is all well and good, but I saw earlier today on Twitter the number one trending item was hashtag delete Facebook. So hmm. maybe maybe there is some hope. That's not what we're talking about. Tonight. No, that's we're not. not gonna, we, maybe we should add that to the list <laughs> of things we shouldn't want to talk about for a while. Social media cuz we we do we do well, circle back to the it, ills of that for a while. Unfortunately, there are a lot of them. Uh, but yeah, that's we can talk about other things. Yeah. The tonight's topic. Well, oh, I I should I should do this first as a programming note. I am wearing our Salacious Crumbs t-shirt. Uh, we dropped a new episode earlier today, seven o'clock, mm-hmm. and we have our crack team of eyeball reporters who are keeping an eye on ESPN Monday Night Football to let us know whether or not we get a Rise of Skywalker trailer. So, uh, as soon as we know something for sure, if they drop one. We'll get a notification from somebody who's who's monitoring that, and uh, and we'll let you know. See, this is this is the beauty of live TV, because you know it as soon as we know it, as soon as it happens. Uh, in the meantime, there's seven minutes left in the second well, half. Well, seven minutes left in the second half. The first, oh, uh, the in the second quarter. I was about to say second. Seven minutes left in the second half. Hold on. <laughs> yes. Crack team, but not a team on crack. That's very true, Thomas. Yes. Crack we. <laughs> yes. Um, so in the meantime, while we're waiting for our friends to tell us whether or not we get a Rise of Skywalker trailer, we talk about the magic friendship. Because friendship, friendship is, is magic. magic. <laughs> I did uh, that on purpose. This is not, in fact, going to be a discussion of My Little Pony. No. Um, although there was a time when Dustin and I had considered the possibility of actually doing a discussion of My Little Pony, mm-hmm. because when the show came back, when there was that period when it was on the, you know, people were talking about the writing quality of the show. Right. And the fact that this was actually getting a ton of praise from people who were going, this is really smart writing for a cartoon. Well, and a lot of people... For what have, is aimed as a children's cartoon. Yeah, and a lot of people have made a, a very strong distinction between Friendship is Magic and every other iteration of yep. My Little Pony. And I remember when I did an interview with John Delancey, who played Discord, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I'm asking him about My Little Pony. And he interrupts my question. And I, 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 My Little Pony, friendship is magic. He, he, he insisted yep. on making that distinction himself. Because friendship, and magic, friendship is magic is a completely different level Yeah. Of My Little Pony. We're not going to talk about My Little Pony. No, we are talking about friendship, though. Friendship. And talking about friendship in genre. Yes. And one of the things that you, for all the great, pick pick anything in comic books or or science fiction films or or any of this sort of thing, where 
the really the stories that last. Um, not all. There's other things that there are other types of stories that lasted too, of course. But a huge chunk of them are built around the friendships of the characters, these iconic yes. friendships. Um, and I mean, you can you know, Lord of the Rings, um, Frodo and Samwise. I mean, this is a. I mean, when you know the argument that that all of Lord of the Rings is really the story of of Samwise. Yeah, you know, he's the he's the true hero of the he's story, the and he carries Frodo, you know. Um, on his back through a huge chunk of, you know, some of the most dangerous places in Middle Earth. <laughs> it's, you know, it, that's, that's an amazing story of friendship. And it's, you look at stuff like that, and then you look at stories, you know, things like uh, Kirk and Spock. You know, Batman and Superman. I mean, these are, these are, and these are friendships that become incredibly powerful pieces of storytelling. Not only within uh, the, the story, the comic book or the film or the book or the novel, whatever. Um, but it ends up reverberating through pop culture as well right. they become these things that we you know you talk about you know if you talk about Kirk and Spock that, that's a shorthand for a lot of things I mean it becomes this sort of stuff well and it it actually goes back even further than that I when I was in high school I did a research paper uh, in my English class on the the faithful companion mm-hmm. archetype and it goes back, I think the earliest iteration of that was James Fenimore Cooper in The Last of the Mohicans, because you had you had Hawkeye and you had his faithful companion Chingachgook, mm-hmm. who basically set the template for hero, trusty sidekick, faithful companion stuff. Oh, you... And then you have the Lone Ranger and Tonto, yeah. you have Kirk and Spock, you have you know, uh, the Green Hornet and Cato. I mean, everything after that, you have Hawkeye and Chingachgook at the very beginning of all of that. Although you could argue that you could go far, even super far back and it's something like um, Gilgamesh and Enkidu. Well, that's true. Uh, although it's it's a different kind of thing because the, the you know, when you get into myth cycles, um, they're, they take on a completely different kind of tone. But again, it's yep. the story of a... Of a uh, you know, Arthur and Lancelot. Arthur and Lancelot, to a point. <laughs> well, and, and Arthur uh, and Merlin. I mean, even you look, yeah. at, you look, you look at that sort of thing. So, although, I mean, although Merlin and Arthur, I, I'd see Merlin and Arthur and Batman and Robin and Obi-Wan and Luke. So the mentor. More the mentor-protege yeah. type of relationship more than the, the best friends. Yeah, I mean, that, that's so true. You got Han Solo and Chewbacca, mm-hmm. Han Solo and Lando Calrissian. Um very different kinds of friendships. Yes. Um, yes. Well, and I think it's one of the things is that there's room, while while certainly in, because this is how storytelling works, right? A lot of these friendships are friendships between contrasting personalities. Mm-hmm. People who are very, very different. And that's part of the reason that they, you know, as a writer, as a storyteller, you want to have characters who are different from each other to have things to bounce things off of. Sure. Right? Yeah. If everybody's the, the same, it gets boring. Well, and you look at Kirk Spock McCoy mm-hmm. as the triumvirate there, that, that trinity in Star Trek. Spock, you know, Kirk, Kirk is at the apex, and you've got McCoy as the emotional aspect of the three and Spock the logical rational one of the three and Kirk's sort of a, a melding of the two taking taking pieces from both and making his decisions and his choices and leading from that 
I think when you have that, like you said, that study in contrast or complementary mm-hmm. characteristics, then you have a much stronger foundation that you can tell those stories because one, not everybody is the same. Two, not everybody's going to get along all the time. Right. That was one of the problems that I had with Star Trek The Next Generation. In the beginning, especially, is everybody got along. Yeah. You know, they, they didn't, they didn't, there was no friction. Yeah. Deep Space Nine was great because of that. Oh, you look at, you look at some of the, the characters in there, you know, uh, Bashir and O'Brien. Yeah. Okay. Uh, um, Bashir and Garrick. Bashir and Garrick. And, <laughs> and honestly, that's, that's an example right there of, of two characters who appear very much to be opposites. Mm-hmm. And yet, as the series progresses, Bashir becomes more of the spy. He yeah. becomes more of the intelligence agent, willingly or unwillingly. I mean, Section 31 is just all over him. Um, and, you know, there's something about, there's something about the disreputable friend in genre fiction. Yes. You know, you have Superman and Batman. I mean, Superman is the Boy Scout. Batman is the manipulator and the planner and the plotter. And, of course, one of the great comic book arcs, Tower of Babel, is where it's revealed that, you know, Batman has plans to take out everybody. And and so these are... And Batman doesn't trust people, and Superman does. And the fact that these two characters, some of the best writing of them as friends is really great. Because they look at each other and they see the part... Bruce wishes he could be more like Clark. Mm-hmm. Clark wishes that he could be, I mean, not more like Bruce, but take some of that, some of Bruce's strengths, his intellect, his planning. I mean, the fact that the man is incredibly prepared. You know, he wishes he had more, some of that more in his personality as well. Right. They want, they want, they, they get something out of that friendship. Another uh, pair like that from DC Comics would be Green Arrow and Green Lantern. Oliver Queen and Hal Jordan. Right, yeah. Because Hal Jordan is the straight arrow cop, conservative, I guess, you know, by the book, follow the rules, mm-hmm. you know, structure and order. And Oliver Queen is the hippie. And, you know, he's going to thumb his nose at the man. And we don't need no stinking rules. And he does his own thing. Now, this characterization came out of brilliant primarily stories. out of the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Danny O'Neill and Neil Adams. Now, really, after Longbow Hunters, a lot of that was went away. Yeah, because we all, I mean, and that, that was stuff going on in, in Hal Jordan's character with Parallax and dying and all oh. the things, and then of course, and then of course, uh, Green Arrow died for yeah. a while. Uh, but, but yeah, no, that <laughs> stuff was there. Well, but also Barry Allen and, and Hal Jordan, different kind of friendship. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, Barry Allen is often considered to be one of the more lighthearted characters. Um, and playing that sort of, you know, I'm having fun with this thing. Off Ever of, the optimist. Off of off of Hal's more by the book. It's a different kind of contrast, but it worked well. Yeah. Um, and now you look at something like, you know, and, and it goes well on the villain side as well. One of the, one of the big friendships in comic books right now. And, of course, they're just going to, a lot of people are saying, why aren't we going to see this in the new Harley Quinn movie is Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy. Even if you take, I mean, there's a romantic angle to to some of it, but not all the time. And yeah. and when you take these two characters, and this is this is part of the whole giving Harley and 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 well Harley and Clayface and some of the other Batman villains a chance to have a redemption arc. 
Um, which do is they an, need it though? Well, I think in some some characters you never want it. I mean, so you you the 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 White Knight. What I think it's White Knight series where where Joker goes sane. Oh right. Okay, right. that's an interesting thing because it plays against an expectation. It shows you what a character could be like if they are inverted from what they are. Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting series. I recommend it. Um, but I think for characters like Harley, um, I think there was a recognition that for as as amusing as it can, it, it certainly started off as in Batman the Animated Series. If you stare too long at the Harley and Joker relationship, yeah, you realize how how warped it is, and you kind of sit there and go, "What? What if Harley got out of that? Would that? Would, wouldn't <laughs> we like to see that?" And some of the days I said, "Sure," but the fact that Harley is is still her own kind of, uh, you know, off. Yeah. Um, I again, you come into this contrast where you have two, you know, different kinds of friendships that, that develop with these characters. And I think it works. You have um, Superboy and. Um, um, uh, uh, Tim Drake's Robin. You, okay, you'd be the Con- current, the current, Con- Connor, Connor Kent, Kent Superboy. Connor Kent, yeah, yeah, uh, and not Kurt, Jonathan Kent. Right, Jonathan Kent and and Damian. Damian Wayne. Right. So I mean, yeah. you, you have these kind of and and again, it's it's variations on that certain kind of playing off, um, but also <clears throat> Tim Drake's Robin doesn't have the seriousness of Bruce Wayne's Batman. Mm-hmm. So there's, it's a different kind of friendship with with Tim Drake and Connor Kent. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that the authors there have played with is when Connor Kent is killed, what that does to Tim Drake and what it does to his personality. And, and then so there's all kinds of ways to play with this stuff. And certainly you get back, go back to Star Trek. You know when when Spock dies in Star Trek Two: Wrath of Khan. Spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> Um, the impact, I mean, Star Trek 3 is one of my favorite Star Trek films. It's one of the more underrated Star Trek movies. But it's it's the impact of, mm-hmm. of Spock's death that plays out, in the, especially in the first half of the film. Yeah. Um, that I think uh, really makes it work. Because you also see that McCoy is Spock's friend. It's a very different kind of friendship than Kirk and Spock. These two people who are not likely to look at each other and say, yeah, we're friends. But it's there. It's a very real friendship. They like poking at each other. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, I'm going to keep you on your toes. And they would do anything for each other. Yeah. The idea that, the idea that, that, you know, McCoy is only driven to go back to the Genesis planet by what's in his head is not the case. I mean, it's McCoy's going to save Spock. I mean, it's, it's, it's in there too. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's, even though he's angry about it. Oh yeah. He's, <laughs> well, McCoy, you know, McCoy is also an example of the friend of yours. Who's a grouch. He's just a grouch. I mean, he's, he, he enjoys complaining about part of the complaining about things is the fun thing. I have, I have found myself. Over the years, I have found myself identifying with the different members of the triumvirate. Mm, sure. When I was in high school, I identified more. Well, when I was younger, when I was when I was a kid, I've, I identified more with Spock. Mm. I want to be this. You know, I'm the smart one. I'm kind of the outcast. I don't fit in. I, you know, whatever. And I and I I want to be the smart one. When I was in high school, I identified a little bit more with Kirk because I was sort of, I wasn't the ringleader, but I had a circle of friends and it was like, okay, let's go and do this. I was, I drove things a little bit more than everybody else did. 
And as I get older now, I find myself identifying with McCoy a little bit more. You know, that whole friendly curmudgeon, get off my lawn type (laughs) that says, um, you know, it's his revenge for all those arguments he lost. You know, it always has that one little dig. Um, And I will say that for however you (laughs) feel about the the J.J. Abrams spin on, on the Star Trek universe, one of the things they got pretty close to right was once once the friendship developed between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy in in that version of the stories, yeah. the the character dynamics between those three played off pretty well. I thought they did a very good job, especially between the sort of nudging, uh, you know, poking each other thing that between uh, um, uh, their their version of of Spock and McCoy. Well, and I think a lot of that probably could be attributed to Carl Urban. Oh yeah. Well, and, and clearly, the, the however you feel about the writing of the film series, the actors were investing a lot into mm-hmm. those characters. I think I think they were very committed to the idea of doing them doing them justice, which is what you want, obviously. What do you got? I, not so that I'm going to repeat on, oh, on live chat. Well, let me look at uh, Robert being Robert. <laughs> well, you know, Robert, they have a pill for that. Anyway. Um, <laughs> It, it's funny we were where was it what were we on the other the other the other day that we were doing a live i guess it wasn't it wasn't uh i guess maybe it was good morning multiverse mm. saturday morning robert and sci-fi snob were in like mm-hmm. they usually are right yeah. and they were talking about how they're regulars and robert mentioned the, about how he always Gets a warning and he almost gets banned every time he's in here. But we're gonna let that one pass. Because well, mostly because I got to say a funny thing in response. <laughs> yes, you did. So, so if you're watching the show, you can see something that you normally don't see, which is I brought the list, list of notes. things. And if you are if you are listening to it and hear the sound of rustling, that's usually Jason making the rustling paper that's noise. Right. Um, I sat down and I wrote down a list of characters that are. Um, certainly within their little corner of the science fiction fantasy universe. Now, before you get into that list, yeah. I'll let you know that I've got to get up at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, we, so we can't be up all night. We can't this, be up all night. Um, no, but I mean, some of it are, are, are pretty obvious ones. Mulder and Scully from the X-Files. Mm-hmm. Uh, before there was a romance, there was a friendship. Yeah. And even even once they got to the romance part, it was about two friends who happen to be in love with each other mm-hmm. um, and the dynamic of the skeptic and the believer certainly again Rebecca that contrast kind of thing right. um, and I think that really was the core of the show for like the first five seasons really was this growing friendship and this this trust that these two characters developed uh, Stargate SG-1 Star- both, the, both the movie the original film and the TV series right. the contrast between uh, um you know the soldier and the scientist between you know O'Neill and Jackson, um, the contrast between the serious scientist soldier mm. Samantha Carter and the not serious <laughs> military man. In Jack well, and, and you look at the dynamic between O'Neill and Tilk. Mm, yeah, mm-hmm. you know where and and you can see some of. Maybe not necessarily this, the the McCoy Spock dynamic there because it's not quite Kirk either, right? But it's that 
in between where O'Neill likes to have fun with Tilt's oh, yeah. serious mm-hmm. demeanor. Sure. And as you get, we've been we've been watching Stargate all the way through. We're in season six now. I'm, it's Mindy's first time to watch it, I think. And we're in season six. And as you get through each season, you can see Teal'c even starting to have fun with his serious oh, yeah. demeanor. He's he's poking at himself almost in some places, or or he's you know everybody knows that he's serious, so they don't they can't tell when he's joking or right, not, yeah. and he's having fun with that now. I think it's great. Um, yeah, no, and, and I think that's that's. One of the important things to these these friendships in, in science fiction and genre that really make them work is that the characters change over time. Mm-hmm. They evolve. And I think yep. that, especially with the original Star Trek crew, once you get into the films, because the TV show was a certain amount of reset every episode, yeah, um, you could get a little bit of growth over time. But but once you got into the films, and you got to really play with the dynamics, of course, Spock dying, and, and uh, uh, again, spoiler alert, and well, and and you don't get to have that with a lot of franchises. You don't you, you don't get that evolution of a relationship between characters over a period of 15, 20, 30, 40 years. Oh no. Especially with the same actors playing those characters well, but all the, that time. But at the same time you end up with a show like say Doctor Who. Where one of the most powerful emotional moments, um, and it was very, very small, was when Matt Smith's doctor calls. He basically, he's running away from his own, his own death, and he calls trying to, he's going to go out and grab the Brigadier. They're going to go for a spin, and he calls and discovers that the Brigadier has died. Yeah. And it's a tiny moment, and Matt Smith plays it beautifully. And it's a great acknowledgement for the fans of the show that this, there's this character, because of course... Uh, you know, the actor had passed away. And for a character that, you know, Nicholas Courtney interacted with a bunch of different actors playing the Doctor, but it was always the Brigadier's friends with the Doctor, whichever face the Doctor was wearing. Right. And um, there's something really, really well, I mean, and you would get stuff, especially with when the show came back in the, in the 2005 when it became a little more story arc driven right. uh, over long periods of time where a previous stuff in this season would really be calling back to the previous seasons and that sort of thing. So you were able to, uh, that kind of callback to a character who you didn't get to see in the revived series mm-hmm. on screen um, was really powerful. Um, and it says something about the, the dynamic that um, you know started in the 60s for those characters. Yeah, because uh, he started, what, right at the end of the second mm-hmm. Doctor? Yeah, I think, was it Web of Evil, I think, was the episode? I'm not sure. I think that's what it was. But it was the Yeti, I believe, was the first okay. the first wow. uh, time with him. Um, and you have some more modern ones. If you watched Person of Interest, um, there were a lot of these little friendships uh, developing within the characters of the show. Uh, where um, And when the one toward the end that, of course, really caught caught on with a lot of fans was between um, the characters Shaw and Root. Mm-hmm. And Root was the unethical hacker, manipulator, borderline, you know, psycho-criminal. Um, and Root was this ex-soldier, you know, um, 
very much a structured, serious individual. Then these two ended up, and it started off as, as Root mocking Shaw, and because Root mocked everyone. But by the end of the show, it was these two, you know, they were teasing a romantic relationship, but until that point, it was, it was a really, really interesting friendship. Mm. That by the, but in the in, spoiler alert for the end of the series, and I don't want to, I kind of don't want to do that, because if you haven't seen Person of Interest, you need to go watch it. It's a very well done show about the interesting, positive aspects of AI and then very negative aspects of AI and I, warring AIs. You cannot convince me that there are positive aspects of AI. Um, if you have an AI who actually intends, who, who actually believes that there are ways to help people. No, I still I still I, know, buy it's it. It's, I still don't buy it. Well, Robert asks, what's the steampunk Doctor Who movie called? You saw it once, steampunk Doctor Who, can't remember the name. Is that one of the the Peter the Cushing ones? Steampunk Doctor Who movie. Um, well, you I don't know if you're thinking of the TV movie that was the American uh, attempt to do the 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 idea was that it was an American production company working with the BBC and the idea was that they were going to try and have this was in when Doctor Who was off the air. Right. Uh, and that was the McGann Paul McGann. Movie. And the, the TARDIS in that is the best TARDIS of all time as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. It's gorgeous. And it's very steampunk. Uh, big arcing uh, ceilings with metal beams and this, this wood and steel and brass mm -hmm. console. It's beautifully, beautifully done. That may be what you're thinking of. Um, uh, there were a couple episodes where they kind of leaned into the steampunk aesthetic for individual things, but as far as movies, that might be the one you're thinking of. Um, the Cushing movies were uh, Peter Cushing playing a very different version of the Doctor. Uh, long before uh, Doctor Who Unbound in the audiobooks, uh, it basically was the first Doctor Who Unbound stories because it was it was a completely different version of the Doctor. He was human, uh, and, uh, he and his in, name is actually he, Who. Yeah, and he invented. He he's a human who invented a time machine, uh, and um, it was that was a um, I want to say it was it was a rights issue that they were able actually to go off and make movies that that weren't in cont continuity of uh, and of course the 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 Virgin Line and the BBC Lost or Missing Adventures or, or Past Doctor Adventures found ways to work those into a kind of continuity. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah. Um, well, along those lines, Doctor Who. Yeah. Besides. You know the friendships that he had with uh, with companions. I would say that one of his strongest friendships, and I l use that term loosely, is with the master. Oh yeah, and I think that that really, especially when you get into the tail end of Capaldi's run, where uh, you know you have you have Michelle Gomez doing. She's honestly one of my favorite versions of the master, especially when you get to the bits where she's playing off of John Sim, mm. where you have this like great contrast between these two wonderful actors doing versions of the same person um and i want now i want like unfortunately some of our great we would still have derek jacoby i wanted to get derek jacoby in the mix with i want a three masters episode i for some reason isn't there an audio uh there's isn't there a big finish audio that's I got multiple masters i believe there is and i think they even got um eric eric, eric roberts, roberts to come back yeah yeah um, I think it's an Eighth Doctor thing. Is I think it, is, probably is a, is. a multiple, I think like so. a four or five. It's an arc. Yeah, I think so. Like something. Um, and, uh, but that whole dynamic, especially toward the end, where the Doctor is, you know, Capaldi's Doctor is trying very, very hard to, to, 
I don't know if redeem is the right word, but he feels like there's still some of the person who was his friend in yeah. the master. And it's, I think it plays really, really well. Um, I think it would be very, very interesting to see, uh, uh, Michelle Gomez come back as the master. I'd love to see her play off the doctor now. That could be so much fun. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, Farscape, if you haven't seen Farscape, yeah. um, yeah. Fantastic series of friendships there. John and Dargo, um, you know the the human the the human astronaut who's lost in a world of, you know of, of alien creatures who all want him dead, and the the Luxon warrior who at heart is still a young man who's coming into who's growing into being a mature man uh, of his of his species, and their friendship is so funny. In the shorthand, he's kind of like the Farscape Klingon. To some degree, yeah, yeah, yeah. But warrior, also warrior class type. Yeah, and yeah. and you, but if you if you look at all the characters in the TV show, one of the things that made Farscape work really really well is that the core friendships that develop between all of the characters. Um John and Chiana, who's sort of your uh pickpockety young rascal kind of female character. It's a big brother, little sister mm. dynamic. Uh, John and Aaron, which of course develops into the, one of the great love stories of the show, um, before they get to that point, before they admit how they feel about each other, um, there's a fantastic friendship where they're like, you know, they know they could stand back to back and have you know all the enemies of the universe coming for them and be like, eh, we got this, yeah. you know, and they'd be lying to each other, but they'd say it, <laughs> you know, and even in a weird way, um, John ends up with a clone. Uh, a mental clone of his greatest enemy, uh, Scorpius, in his head. And, and there's a, a weird kind of antagonist, you know, that kind of antagonistic friendship, friendship, mm -hmm. the one where you're like, you know, we're not really friends, we're stuck with each other, and so we're going to, you know. I have that kind of relationship with the voice in my head all the time. <laughs> um, now, of course, it ends, it ends with John basically going, get out. <laughs> <laughs> but... I mean, there's oh, there, that whole I show could. is built around the, the whole idea of friendship, really. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really uh, one of the strengths of the show, aside from great production design and some fantastic writing. Um, Mal and Zoe from uh, Firefly, yeah. Serenity. Yeah. Um, and that is, for all that there are, I mean, uh, Mal and Jane are not friends. They work together. They have an understanding. They'll they'll back each other up. But yeah. it, but Mal and Zoe went through a war together, and they're the fire forged friends. That 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 idea. The folks who went through something you know that is traumatic and terrifying and awful, but it builds this connection that they built on. And you get these great little moments between the two of them. Mm -hmm. If you're a fire, if you if you've not watched Firefly <laughs> or Serenity, um, yeah. uh, the film is first of all uh, Chiwete Etiofor. Uh, plays the villain in that, the operative, and it's a wonderful performance, and it's a great. And he and and, and Nathan Fillion play so beautifully off each other. The dynamic, two characters who in another universe might have been friends. Yeah, you know, right. that's that's the kind of di dynamic they have. Um, uh, I, I saw somebody uh, mention one of the great friendships in um, in genre fiction is uh, Blackadder and Baldrick. And I, my thought to that was, that's not a friendship. <laughs> At the same time, um, we get into shows like the like the fourth season of Blackadder. If, you, if you're not familiar with Blackadder, it's a British it's a British series um, that basically tells a story of Edmund Blackadder, 
who is um, possibly the most sarcastic Englishman in the history of sarcastic Englishmen. Um, that says a lot. That does say a lot. And Baldrick is his idiot manservant. Um, and uh, a lot of the humor is like a, a large portion of the great British humor, uh, horribly mean. Um, and that's Rowan Atkinson, Rowan right? Atkinson, yeah. And for those of you who are familiar with him with like Mr. Bean or some other things, Blackadder is so much better than a lot of the stuff he's known much wider isn't, for. Okay, so isn't that... Don't some people consider that possibly a time travel... So there actually Ish was there thing. was a Christmas there was a Christmas <clears throat> episode of Blackadder and it was a, I think it was feature length and it was a time travel story and it was based on a Christmas Carol and it's like the the sweet and kind Edmund Blackadder who everyone loves and yet takes advantage of <laughs> discovers that his ancestor no that his uh, uh, I think it's his ancestors it's been a while since I've seen it. Uh, we're all just these awful people. And and then he goes to the far-flung future and discovers that Balrek, his idiot friend, his descendant, is the ruler of the universe. And this, of course, turns Blackadder to evil, or at least, you know, uh-huh. out for himself. It's wickedly funny stuff. But the fourth season of Blackadder um, was set during World War One because every season was set in a different period of history. And they played a lot with the fact that the BBC is known for its costume dramas and historicals. And um, one, it's... Honestly, the last episode of Blackadder Goes Forth, it's the name of the seri- fourth series, um, is one of the most affecting pieces of television about war. Um, and interestingly enough, every, ep- every character who is usually treated as the butt of the joke um, is given a certain amount of gravitas and weight. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain amount of the characters who usually bite at each other, they're still biting at each other. But there's a biting, and it's like, I count on you to bite back. That's right. who this. That's who we are. And the final moments of that episode are considered by a lot of British audiences to be some of the finest moments of British television, um, because they go over the wall. And and going over the wall in World War One was generally not a particularly yeah. <laughs> coming back from experience. So really some really powerful stuff. And I think that some of the things that you get out of these friendships in science fiction is the great emotional moments that you don't necessarily, if you think of ray guns and spaceships and explosions and robot armies and things like that, you don't necessarily think about the emotional beats mm-hmm. in this stuff. But some of the, some of the great emotional beats from science fiction and fantasy come from the friendships. Um, not necessarily our friendship. I think this probably maybe goes back to uh, the mentor-protege mm-hmm. bit as well. But um, Michael Valentine Smith and Jubal Harshaw. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, I think friendship, I think friendship would, qualifies for that. It, it would, but I think Jubal also is sort of take him under his wing and teach him the ways of the of Well, I the think world Jubal and... thought of himself more <clears throat> that way, but by the time you get to the end of The Stranger in a Strange Land, which is the book roles here, are the reversed. Heim- the roles are reversed. Yeah. And I think that I think that Heinlein did a really good job a lot of the time with characters who were ended up being buddies, being friends in a mm-hmm. lot of his novels. Um, I think that that's some of the best um, you know, Friday or uh, The Cat Who Walked Through Walls. Some of the friendships that are in these books. Space Cadet. Space Cadet. Um, I still can't get my kid to read that book. Uh, some of that stuff really was about the friendship. And, and we go into to Isaac Asimov's Caves of Steel. Mm. 
uh, Lige Bailey and, and our Daniel Ovalaw. Um, you know, the, the, and again, it, it was a, it was to some degrees a Kirk Spock dynamic prior to Kirk Spock. I, you know, so you had, you know, the, the human, the human detective and mm. the Android detective, um, which I think that, uh, as much as I would love to have a really, really good Caves of Steel movie, <laughs> um, they've, they've done a lot of that kind of contrasting stuff in genre, um, and I think there are times that you, know, you have to be careful. I think one of the things that, that they would forget for something like Asimov's Caves of Steel stories is that uh, at their core, they're detective stories. They're detective stories in a science fiction setting. I, Asimov, while he was known for his science fiction stuff, loved mysteries. Yeah. And he wrote a lot of mystery stories. Um, but uh, uh, I think that would be the... You'd almost want to go like a Dark City aesthetic uh, you know, with sure. with a go, it's set in the future, so you you do the future stuff, but give it that kind of you know film noirish aesthetic, and then lean into the the sci fi aspects. What what was the cool world? Cool world. Oh, <laughs> cool world. Was Use such that a, is that is it was such a wasted opportunity. Oh, I know. What a great, I know. It I mean, was. I know. Oh, I want that. I that. I saw the trailers for that, and I was like, this is going to be amazing. And I watched the movie and went, what did you guys? You squandered everything you started off with at the beginning of the movie. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, Robert says he was genuinely sad find, finding out William Shatner skipped Leonard Nimoy's funeral to go to a United Way event. Um. That well, Robert, the they were they were friends. They were very good friends for a number of years, and I have run across a story. And I haven't gotten very much detail because Shatner won't talk about it. But there at the end of Nimoy's life, they had some sort of something happen mm. where Nimoy was upset with Shatner for some reason and they weren't speaking to each other. Mm. And that that was the last of their days and uh, but for the longest time they were they were the best of friends i mean there was there was no um as as near as we can tell from everything i mean you you look at the animosity that's there between chetner and and george decay for example mm -hmm. and <clears throat> how much of that is a uh, you know, affectation, and we were going to play with the fact that we don't like each other or what. But you never heard stories right. about Shatner and Nimoy ever not getting along. Yeah. And, um, you know, everybody else had their issues with Shatner. You know, Duan, Duan wouldn't talk to him. Um, and, you know, Takei had his problems with him, but. But Shatner and Nimoy were almost, you know, as good friends as Kirk and Spock until the end. And for, for whatever reason, we don't know why. And Shatner won't talk about it. Nimoy got upset with something. And I don't know if it was, I, I don't even think it was Star Trek related. Probably not. Um, but, uh, and, and Shatner actually talked about missing the funeral. He addressed that, and he said, you know, he had talked, I, I believe he had talked to the family at one point. He'd even talked to, I believe, Adam. 
And they had said, you know, Leonard would want you to do your charity thing because that's that's the thing. You've got an obligation. You've got a, a commitment. Do that. And he is, as I understand it, Shatner visited with the family afterwards mm. privately. So, well, and I think unfortunately with real life um, friendships, friendships change. People drift away from each other, mm. um, and they drift back together sometimes. And, and friendships are renewed, but. And sometimes some things happen and you, and you don't talk to each other anymore. I think one of the great things about, about genre friendships is sometimes that happens in genre too. But usually by the third act yeah, or the last few chapters, um, you've, you've found that they've, they've found that connection that, yeah. that matters again. My son is partially, his middle name, he's named after my best friend from high school. Mm. And when he got married... Everything changed. Mm. The dynamic between him and his wife basically changed the dynamic between him and me and between him and his family. He barely talks to his own family anymore mm. because of the relationship. Whatever, whatever impact his marriage has had, he doesn't talk to anybody. Yeah. And you talk about, uh, you know, drifting away. And, and yeah, every now and again, you get family, you, know, you get friends that they're in your life and then they're not. And right. then, yeah. you know, I've got some people that I've reconnected with over Facebook, sure. mostly. But, um, you know, people that I, you know, what well, Leslie Walker, who's, mm -hmm. who's yeah. contributed right. here, she and I went to school together, junior high and high school. And then... I went to college, and she went to college, and we had yeah. our lives. And da, 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 it's very and, easy to do. And now we're we're reconnected, and and it's it's sometimes it's kind of odd some of the people that you reconnect with. That's true. But at the same time, I mean, I'm I'm friends with I reconnected with with an ex girlfriend of mine, and long past the point where we were anything you know sure. was going to be like that. You know, she's happily married, and we but but we. We had begun as friends before we, we were involved, and so it was kind of nice to reconnect with that friendship again. And at the same time, I've got you know people who I'm quite content now that the friendship has drifted away to not to not and and, and, and that and that's okay. <coughs> I've got and, one or two of those, <clears throat> and you know it, it's okay for that to be the case sometimes. Sometimes you're just like you you've become different people, mm -hmm. and I think that one of the things that makes some of these great genre friendships work is while the characters do evolve. And they do change. They do grow in ways that make them make them to continue to be interesting. You know, you're not looking at the same. Batman is not the same Batman he was ten years ago or ten years before that. He evolves for his audience. Yeah. Superman's the same way. Uh, Kirk and Spock. Um, there's always going to be a certain core of who these characters are because it makes them who they are. But ten years from now, the novels are going to be a little bit different. Than the novels from ten years ago, you're going to see that because 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 writing styles will change. What the pub what the public want how how the public wants their stories told. Yeah, this stuff is going to change. That's that's the superficial stuff. That's the trappings. But once you get down to the core things, you know the friendship of Batman and Superman. It's going to evolve depending on the writers and the audience. But mm -hmm. the core is going to be the same. Kirk and Spock, the same thing. Um, if you if they remake Star Wars, because you know it'll happen someday. Um, they're and they recast, um, you know, Han and Chewie. You're going to get a different dynamic because the audience is going to be different. Right. But the core thing between these two characters, which doesn't need a backstory, by the way, 
Um, yeah. <laughs> um, it just needs to be there on screen. It's still going to be there because that's what makes the characters work. You mentioned Superman and Batman. There are a couple of different examples of this that I think are really good illustrations of your point. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a three-issue miniseries called World's Finest. It's written yeah. by Dave Gibbons. Mm-hmm. And it's fantastic artwork. And I can't remember who did the art. Um, uh, but Gibbons wrote it. And it's a three-issue short limited piece and a lot of it focuses around this orphanage that's being built at the halfway point between metropolis and and gotham city Mm. and it's a joker lex luther team up and mm -hmm. batman superman team up and the they're not friends batman and superman they're not friends in this story Mm -hmm. But you see the beginnings. Yeah. You see the respect. It's like, I don't really quite... Nah, okay, I see what you're doing. Yeah. And I can appreciate what you're doing. But we're not friends yet. Yeah. And then Kevin J. Anderson has written a book called Enemies and Allies, mm-hmm. which is set in the 50s. And it's another Batman-Superman first meeting each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've got the trappings of the fifties, but yeah. that those those core elements of those two characters are still there, yeah. and you recognize Superman and Batman, and you recognize Batman doesn't trust anybody, like you you know like we were talking about before. Batman doesn't trust anyone. Superman's not quite sure what to think about Batman because he's wearing a mask, and he's breaking and entering, and he's right, yeah. he's, this, he's he's outside working outside the law, and why we can't have that. And so there's that, you know, well, he's an alien, but he's he's doing the right things, so maybe I can trust you there's that. Yeah. So those two completely different types of stories, but those core elements of those characters are there. Mm-hmm. And and if you have a good writer, and that's that's a key element in all of this. Oh, sure. Your your writer has to understand the core dynamics between these characters or else you end up with the crystal star. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you can and you you can play with this stuff a little bit to a degree as well because when you get into like the secret identity ideas, um one of the and, and however you feel about the whole uh Batman Catwoman wedding thing with no. how it played out, the scene the episodes leading up to it where they got into like the Going out to dinner with being Lois and Clark mm-hmm. and, and Bruce and Selena. And the fact that Lois just sort of reveled in the fact that she can poke both of these guys and 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 you know get the reactions that she expects. You know, she she can mock Bruce in a certain way. And Bruce is kind of like, hmm. <laughs> and then he laughs because he realizes, you know, because he does have a sense of humor about himself. Yeah. Um, it, these great little dynamics, it's out of costume. Where it's just people having dinner, and and you get those little moments that we all have when we go out to dinner with friends. Mm-hmm. But you realize that you're sitting around a table with you know, Batman and Superman, and they're yeah. discussing what you know what you're going to order. <laughs> it's the shawarma scene at the end of the Avengers. I think in the ra- in the in the in in real life, you would have that kind of a dynamic with celebrities or sports stars or you know that kind of thing where um 
you know, well, for example, you know, Tom Kane, mm-hmm. we're, we're friends with the voice of Yoda, and and you say it that way, and it sounds really like, yeah. oh, hang on, what? But he's just a guy. Yeah. He's just a normal guy. And, you know, he's got a family and he's got obligations. He's got a job. And you know, mm-hmm. and to him, the voice work is just, that's just what he does. That's mm-hmm. the job. And you don't think about the celebrity aspects of these things. Right. It's just the people you work with. Yeah. The people you're friends with at work. Yeah. 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 And it would be that kind of thing, certainly. Um, you know, there's a lot more we could talk about. Uh, the the mummy. I'm sorry, the mummy. Uh, I said Bill Mummy. Um, uh, uh, the, the robot yeah. and and Will Robinson. Well, yeah, in both in, in both versions of, of Lost sure. in Space or Data and Jordy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would even go so far as to say that you could talk about the friendship between Tweaky and Crichton um, from the second season of Buck Rogers. I think you could, uh, and I think that there's some. Oh, well, and you uh, okay? C's three PO and R two D two. Yeah, uh, playing some of those things about the the again, you know, that's the that's very much playing off the contrast. But you look at something like um, you know, uh, the robot and Will Robinson, and again, that's one of the one of the reasons that the the current version of Lost in Space, I think, works as well as it does. They lean into the relationship aspects in mm-hmm. this extraordinary set of circumstances. Sure, you know, it's a story about family. It's a story, and and the, uh, while the robot is extremely different than the robot, and they're not, they're. They're taking the concept of the original show and they're playing with it in, I think, a, a relatively fresh way. I think yeah. it's not, they're not making it, it's not a complete remake. It's not a complete reboot. It's a heavily inspired by, I think. It's an alternate universe. Yeah, type and I think, I think it works. I think yeah. overall, it, the first season wasn't perfect, but it was, it had a lot of strengths. But the way that they play with the robot, whether it's the original robot who is simply, you know, Turns out to have a lot more personality than a machine really ought to, mm-hmm. um, and a young boy who is um, easily manipulated by Doctor Smith, mm-hmm. um, and then you have the the modern version where the the robot is an alien creature that the young boy is bonding with because the young boy is like feeling lost in this whole situation, and here's this other entity which is in many many ways like a child. Yeah. Uh, and, and is also lost. Yeah, and, 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 and it works really well. And and Parker Posey's uh, Doctor Smith is a wonderful spin on the character. But it, the, the whole dynamic, especially now, uh, between Doctor Smith and and Will Robinson is not anywhere near that sort of manipulative. I mean, it's very manipulative. But yeah. uh, the original Doctor Smith was a little more of a comic tragic figure. This is a lot more like the Doctor Smith of the of the Lost in Faith pilot. Yeah, who was a much uh, yeah, was more about dangerous to say, character because your your pilot versions of these characters were much different from what you got later. As yeah, they they lean into a lot more of the of the silliness of of the characters. But in the original pilot, uh, Doctor Smith was a very scary character. Mm-hmm. Been very interesting to see what happened if they had let uh, Harris run with that. Yeah. Um, you talk about Jonathan Harris, it reminds me of Lucifer, and that makes me think of Apollo and, and Starbuck. Oh, yeah. Sure, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, Apollo and Starbuck. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then you go back to you go back to some of the things, you know, the in the great genre explosion of the 90s on syndicated TV, um, Xena and Gabriel. Gabriel. Mm. Uh, really just a, a you know. Yeah. And, and I think that, that you had a... Um, well, while you it, it took us this long to get a Wonder Woman movie, 
you know, if you wanted, if you wanted a, a fantasy heroine um, who was probably the closest you're going to get to Wonder Woman yeah, uh, on, Zena. on screen, um, Zena was there. And, and I think that that, um, again, you know, a lot of, a lot of romantic subtext, but at the same time, the friendship between the two characters was very, very real. I think it really, one of the reasons, you know, for all the action and the fun, mm-hmm. the fact that you had this great dynamic between these two characters. Uh, and I think that some of the, you get a chance to play that out on TV once you get into, um, uh, no, more so. Because you certainly could do it with the original Star Trek and the original Battlestar Galactica and, and, and some of the, you know, the original Doctor Who. You were able to have these kind of friendships. Uh, the second Doctor and Jamie yeah. uh, play, I think, I think plays off as a great friendship in the show. Um, but certainly once you get into serialized TV where you're able to actually tell the, the longer stories, you're able to dive into that and lean, or go, or go into the movies like Star Trek, mm-hmm. um, or start in the movies like Star Wars. I'll throw out just because I liked it so much, TV show Chuck. Oh yeah. Chuck. Chuck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Chuck. Um, oh, what was his name? Well, I don't remember Oh, see, now you've done it to me, too. I can't remember either. Uh, actually, the, uh, the, cool, the cool thing about Chuck is that it's all about friendships. Yeah. Uh, and, and, all four of them. And yeah, and... The, and, the dynamics and, change. You know, you don't have a microphone, right? If you didn't... If you, <laughs> yeah, if you, uh, we've, Chuck was thrown out as, as an example of that. And, and certainly there's been, you know... Um, I mean, Chuck is a genre show in the sense that it's a story about artificial intelligence sure. and, and, yeah. and superpowers and things like that. But... You know, I, we don't tend to think of of comedies, comedy TV shows in, in genre stuff as much as much as you think of the other things. But they they certainly count. I I think you could also make the argument that Get Smart oh, is a yeah. genre show because it's got gadgets, it's got robot. <laughs> yes, that's very so, true. So you know, I, I think and and there is a there is a friendship dynamic between Max and Ninety Nine. Until it evolved into something, sure, right? Was that you know, and and it was more their friends because Max is blind to everything. Oh yeah, but it's it still worked. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that, um, you know, as much as we like the soaring stories of space opera or. Um, you know the robot war, or or all the different things that we get. Some of the great ideas of science fiction, mm-hmm. the cool stuff, the space exploration in general, and you know the cosmic cosmic ex- explorations of two thousand and one, and that sort of things. Um, I think a lot of the stuff that really really lasts is because of the character dynamics, the friendships that are built on these characters. I mean, two thousand and one is an amazing movie, but it's a very cold film. It's not about the friendships of the characters. I mean, the most you know the character with the most emotional depth in two thousand and one is a computer. Mm. I mean David Bowman and and Frank Poole are you know they're the human leads of the film, but they're very very controlled, you know professional astronauts who are everything is very. I'm I'm going to deal with the issue. I mean you, they're the kind of astronaut you actually want right. uh, out there in the universe. Sure. Um, but the the character with the most emotional range is how s- the power of that movie is in the visuals and the plot. Right. It's not in the the, 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 the human emotions. Yeah. I saw two three days ago. I ran across um, somebody had put on Vimeo. It's a fan film. Mm. What happened to Frank Poole after he got blasted out into space? Mm-hmm. And it's a it's an interesting 
it's an interesting piece. He is basically it, is just, it the fillers between that and three thousand and one? Um, well, it it's it's the one where he's he's floating, and floating and floating, and I think it's a two hundred and thirty years later or two hundred and three years later, two hundred some years later, he ends up landing on this desolate moon. Of course, he's dead, right? Mm-hmm. And it sits there. You know, his body is just there in the mm-hmm. in the the dust and you hear you know the camera starts moving in on his body and you hear the 2001 theme again Mm -hmm. and the monolith shows up and right there at the end frank reaches up toward the monolith and you're out and i I thought yeah that's kind of a neat little piece 3001 he's brought back 2001, uh, the model, he's actually returned to life oh, okay. in the yeah. future world because they can actually, they find his body and they're actually able to revive it. Um, and of course, he's in a world that he doesn't understand and, and certainly sure. it's changed because the world of the monolith. Um, and I, actually, if you want to dive into that um, a little bit, the by the time 2010, the novel finishes, um, there's a new kind of friendship that's actually created with Hal and um, uh, David Bowman, mm-hmm. and um, and actually, as the series goes on, several other people become part of this group consciousness that ends up being this kind of interesting um, uh, group of explorers of of this kind of technological uh, creation that is the monolith. Um, that ends up being a certain kind of friendship, an interesting yeah. kind of thing. So there's there's all kinds of different ways and flavors of friendship we get with these folks. What about I, between like, my mind, I know. Enemy mine. Enemy mine. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that would be a good one. Well, and and you you flip that a little bit, and a similar type of thing in the last Starfighter. Mm-hmm. You know that human alien bit. Um, and enemy mine. That's a that's a that's a forged by fire friendship. I mean, that's yeah. A, it's that's, two people who are uh, you know enemies, people who who are. And they're, I think, they're basically forced together by circumstance, and they have to work together to survive. Is the beginning of that? Yeah, and they end up coming to respect each, each other. other. It's a, it's a it's a science fiction film that I think I keep being surprised by people who haven't seen it. But I also realize that it was it was a kind of an under the radar kind of science fiction film. It was Dennis, yeah. Dennis Quaid and Louis Scott Gossett Jr. under mm-hmm. the makeup. Uh, and it, we, you should you should watch it if you if you have a chance to to watch Enemy Mine. It is a good film. Yeah, and and it's all. It's not only a story about about surviving. It's a well. It's a survival story. It's an enemies becoming allies story. It's also a um, to some degree. It's a soldier's level mm-hmm. view of war. Well, it's also a character piece more than it is big special effects, oh, bombastic, yeah. you know, bang zoom. But it's also stuff. you know the argument between someone going well, you know. We, our peoples may be at war, but you are just a person, mm. whatever. The, and and some of the some of the great war stories have been about, you know, recognizing that while the they might be your enemy because of the war, there's a respect. Um, the novel that the sniper movie, the Russian sniper movie from World War Two. Uh, God, was it Stalingrad? I think it was called, but it was it was um, Joseph Fiennes and. I want to say um, William Hurt. I'm, I'm I'm probably getting that wrong. But the the book that it's based on was this sort of weird 
this weird kind of respect relationship that built up between a, a German mm-hmm. and and Russian uh, snipers. Uh, and um, you know, it wasn't. I wouldn't call it a friendship, but it yeah. was certainly a level. It was a respect and a, an acknowledgement of the the skill of the other. There's a dynamic like that, and this is not. It's not genre, so we're kind of wandering afield a little bit. But there's mm. a dynamic like that between Jack Ryan and Sergei Golovko, yeah, who's mm-hmm. uh, the the chief master spy of the Russians. Um, the Tom Clancy books. The yeah. Tom Clancy books. Yeah. And it, 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 as you see, as the stories, you know, as you get through each story, as they evolve, you know, start with the Cardinal of the Kremlin, which mm-hmm. is when Golovko almost shoots Ryan, up to the point where Jack Ryan's president, you see the dynamic of that relationship change. And Golovko continues to just increasingly respect mm-hmm. Jack Ryan yeah. as an operator because you know, well, dude, who is this guy? He's an analyst. And he turns out to be a pretty good operator for an analyst. Yeah. And there's that mutual respect that actually turns into a genuine friendship at one point, I think. And it's it's that similar type of thing. They're not soldiers, but Right. They're, you know, they're spies, and it's the same kind on of the thing. Oppos- they're on the opposite side. Yeah. And, there's, and I, think, I think you end up with stuff like, you know, when you see a lot more of that sort of thing in, in the genre world, it's a lot more the, the hero-villain-romantic kind of relationship that gets played out. Mm-hmm. Of course, Batman and Catwoman and that sort of thing. Um, but certainly, um, you know, or, or you end up with sort of the, the tragic friendship like uh, uh, Batman and Two-Face. Right, where these are two people who actually, you know, in prior to Two Face becoming, you know, Harvey Dent becoming Two Face, there was a friendship between. Sometimes it was Bruce Wayne and, and Harvey Dent. Sometimes it was Batman and Harvey Dent, and they, they, depending on the the era of Batman, yeah. was, which one was leaned into more. But you know, it's a, you know, there's always that point where Batman wants to save Harvey. Well, Batman wants to save the Joker, yeah. and that's not really a friendship. No, no. Um, but it's one of those weird dynamics mm-hmm. that it's they they get each other, they understand each other. They're not friends by any stretch of the imagination, right? But they understand each other more than other people understand them. Well, and that's they, that's an interesting thing yeah, to watch it, play out. It's when de- it, I think honestly, some of the reviews, and I haven't seen it yet. Um, I haven't either. Some of the reviews of Joker that I've heard, the critical aspects um, have have has popped up in several reviews. Is that without a Batman character to play off of, the Joker is actually not as interesting. They say the performances are the performance. Yeah. Uh, the Joaquin Phoenix's performance is fantastic. That that's a whether whether people have liked the film or not, they all agree he's done a great job in in the role. But the fact that he is, to some degree, making the Joker a real character. Yeah. Um, As you, opposed to a comic book. You man. lose what makes the character interesting because the, for all the fact that the Joker is comic book insane, qualifier there, um, he's also a genius. Mm-hmm. He's, an, he's, you know, and, and making, him, making him a tragic figure... Um, based is as much as in reality as any film version of anything is going to be, um, takes away 
mm-hmm. something that mm-hmm. makes. Um, and I I can't remember I can't remember which one I which review I'd seen because uh, I read reviews all the time. I it, they don't affect my enjoyment of the film. I just right. I'm fascinated with how people look at things. Um, somebody one of them was like they were really lamenting the fact that this was a separate continuity and set in a different time because they'd love to see this version of the Joker go against you know uh, Patterson's new Batman. Like put these two on screen because sure. it's an older actor and a younger and younger act. Not not that Patterson's that young, right? Patterson's he, he's he's young enough, right? But I mean you, that playing these two off each other and just the talent wow. that that given given especially since post Twilight, Robert Patterson's done a ton of really good work. Um, I'm definitely and a lot of it nobody's seen. Yeah, because he's done a lot of smaller projects. He's yeah. leaned into that. Um, they're like, why couldn't we have these two? How how do we get? him to come back and do this in the comic book world because that could be I don't and I'm like know, that I don't know like, that you can. I don't think you can either. It's like Nolan's it's, it's like Nolan's Batman trilogy. It doesn't fit within Yeah, no, the, but I, the tone I, of everything. You else would have you would have to basically say that that this Joker film is the Joker. Yeah. And then 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 Joaquin Phoenix is going to come in and play the a different version of the Joker over here. And that's not going to happen. This yeah. is not. But it's, um, you know. But yeah, there's a there's a for 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 all the good and bad of the Killing Joke, uh, the great you know the, that's had a lot of influence on for good and for ill, um, everything, on on the Batman and Joker dynamic in comic books in general. Um, the final scenes where the two the two are you know, uh, Batman and the Joker are mm-hmm. facing off against each other and they're. There's a there's a a weird kind of connection there that you were talking about where these these guys get each other in a way mm-hmm. that that people who don't dress up like bats or killer clowns <laughs> just aren't gonna get. Well, okay, now let me ask you this, and this is not this is this is this is just tangential to our to our topic here. There is a debate. There is an ongoing debate yeah. about the end of the killing joke. Sure, right, yeah. Where if you look at the way the sound effects are are right, yeah. played uh-huh. out in those last few panels, there are people who think Batman killed the Joker at the end of that story. The fascinating thing about those panels and that is that it really can be read both ways. I it think can I, be. Yeah. I think it is. I think it is a fair. Well, and when you consider that it was originally not meant to be in continuity. It was not intended to be Barbara Gordon. Barbara Gordon being crippled in that comic was not meant to be part of the status quo. Right. It was only supposed to be a one-shot, Elseworlds type of thing. And yet, when it happened, it opened up a whole series of different kind of stories for Barbara Gordon. That So when, when the new 52 rolls around, mm. and they make her... They they basically give her the ability to walk again because she she became a different kind of hero. She became Oracle yeah. in the birds of the, the very very well received Birds of Prey series and the whole very the idea of this character going. I'm still yes I can't walk, but I'm still, still a hero. I can still do good. Um, a lot of people found that to be really and because a lot of it was very well written. Hmm. And a lot of people found it to be very very inspiring for the folks who who you know can't walk. Or who were you know in a wheelchair or disabled and there were a in some way? A lot of people that were upset they took that away. Right, and I think that because yes, you can certainly understand that that you know giving Batgirl back, you know, having back, there's an argument about that. 
to be that. But one of the things I think DC was doing well at the time was they were allowing some of their characters to evolve in mm -hmm. ways that made sense. Mm -hmm. And you had a new Batgirl. Um, you had a couple of new Batgirls. Yeah. And and post New 52, a lot of things that a lot of people were upset about was that you had these great characters who suddenly just disappeared. And some of them are coming back. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that they've managed to make that work. But taking away Cassandra Cain, um, you know, taking away Spoiler, some of these other characters that were introduced to to become what... The, the space where Batgirl, yeah. the, the the superhero was versus Oracle, the, the technological uh, and, you know, and genius. The, and the friendship dynamic between Barbara and Batman changed. Oh, yeah. And got, I, I would say, probably got a little bit healthier and stronger oh, yeah. after that when she was Oracle. I think, I think it, you ended up with an, uh, an evolving of the, the characters. Same thing we saw with Nightwing. Um, with Nightwing, when... When Dick Grayson gave up being Robin and became his own hero, mm -hmm. when when Barbara, you know, um, by necessity, he had to become a new kind of person, uh, a new kind of hero, um, as Oracle. The dynamic, the power dynamic between the mentor and student role of of Batman and Robin and Batman and Batgirl shifted, and I think that that that's when you really started seeing, even though the term had been around for a long time. You really started to see the modern Batman family. Yeah. Where where more contemporaries rather than And and an acknowledgement of, of in, in Batman that he wants that. Mm. That he wants these people who who to some degree are his his equal in, in many ways. They're different and he's got certain things they don't, but the fact and I think a lot of it you started to feel like, you know, Batman starting to feel like a father versus, you know, the leader of a of a team. Right. Um, and I think that 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 was I think for, in large part that was that was really a positive thing for the characters. Mm. Um, and while you still didn't have the, you know, I wouldn't call it necessarily the friendship because there is a, there is a family dynamic. Um, I'd say that that Bruce and and Dick Grayson, not the current current Dick Grayson's arc in the comic is a whole different thing, but. Um, is closer to being is closest thing to being a friendship that the, the characters have ever had, which is yep. not bad. There is uh, that kind of thing, family friendship merging together, sort of with the Gatchaman team, mm, sure. Battle of the Planets, mm -hmm. G Force. Yep. Depending on how you how you encountered those right, stories, yeah. um, uh, Seven's Art Seven doesn't count in that family dynamic, but uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it, as we knew them here, Mark, Jason, Princess, Tiny, Tiny and Keops, yeah, they 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 were, you know, put together in this team, and there's a friendship dynamic, and of course you see this between Mark and Jason. There's a little a bit of a yeah. rivalry, a little bit of friction. Who really is in charge right, here? Right. Well, you, you, know. you have the serious, you have the serious one, and you got the bad boy. Yeah, the yeah. hothead. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and, and, I, think and I always identified him with him a little <laughs> bit more. I don't know. You know, he had the car. He had the. He had the sure. He had the, right. The, yeah. Yeah. The slick car. Well, and I was thinking, I was actually looking at um, the old Micronauts comic book. Mm -hmm. um, uh, They're making a movie. Yeah, they keep saying that. Got a, they got a writer. Yeah, well, that's fine. But the pro the problem I is think. the problem is is that you look at 
for for uh, for the folks, yeah, Michael Golden was it Bill Mantlo? I think was the writer on that. I can't. Remember. I think Michael Golden was the artist on on the first. I think probably twelve issues. Wonderful artist. A uh, little bit of hero worship, and actually got to meet him at a convention. I was just like, oh, this is so cool. Um, huge fan of his artwork, especially in the eighties. And he, um, the problem is, is that that was very much the Marvel version. Mm-hmm. Of the Micronauts, the first say seventy-five issues of the comic told this epic story uh, a couple of different times of the rise and fall of their their Darth Vader Baron Karza, and uh, uh, there was a whole friendship dynamic there between between the you know the space glider Commander Ron, who was this you know he was the astronaut and the and the mm-hmm. and the hero, but he also had the you know uh, a Croyer the or Acroyer, depending on your pronunciation, um, who was the stoic warrior figure, um, and how these two became allies and then friends, and and the rights to the con- so this was this was back when the Micronauts were a toy, and they were actually a toy that was selling, and then the toy stopped selling, and the comic last outlasted the toys for a long time. Yeah, and now various got revived at IDW. Oh, got revived wow. at IDW, and unfortunately, because uh, and and the Microns. Which is what the ones the characters that Marvel created and can still use. Uh, Bug actually was a member of the Guardians of the Galaxy for a little while. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, from the Micronauts, um, and the uh, so the versions of the characters have all had. There's a similarity, but they're also very very different depending on which comic company is currently publishing them. Yeah. So the movie, when we get it, I'm going, to be going yeah, but that's Who's it's it? not command. It's not Commander Ran and Marionette and and Acreier and Biotron and Microtron and, and that's not Baron Karza and because it, it was a stuff. It was you know it was my exposure to that thing and that was same kind of thing with GI Joe. I think so. Although although I think that because you and I and kind of you know, you and I remember are old enough to remember when GI Joe was twelve inches tall. Yes. And the I've got a special assignment for you. The the kung fu grip uh-huh. uh, of the characters, and and then the the cartoon came along when we were in our teens. My cousin had the jeep. Oh yeah, and we had all of the different ones, and all the different ones. They had one. You had one. You had a pull the pull cord, and yeah. it would say these different right, things. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, there was a whole series of twelve inch action. They, well, they didn't call them action figures um, all the time then. Um, well, kind Action of. Man was Action Man. Action was, Man was a was a ripoff, a copy of yeah. GI Joe. Um, and I think that the the tall ones, the twelve inch toys. Um, did Action Man come first? I can't, I can't remember. I can't remember. Uh, but Action Man was the one that that actually was part of the whole. Uh, I think it was it came the Mego. Yeah, I think. I think. I think. I think uh, yeah. So all your superhero, your the the classic. Uh, you know, Wouldn't but the, that be fun to have a, like, G, a G.I. Like Joe Action Man crossover? Oh, sure. Uh, but you had, you, had the, you had the really tall... There were a lot of Western. Uh, Johnny West. Yeah. I had that Cap, yeah. Johnny I West and Captain Maddox. I had those. Um, but, you know, the cartoon series came along... Um, uh, I think I think we were about the right age. To, in to, the 80s? In the 80s. But yeah. I think we were also a little bit older than the target audience. Um, so I didn't have the same, it didn't have the same, you know, nostalgia impact. Yeah. Um, well, they were the same characters. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't GI Joe, the, the one guy. Yeah. You know, with the, the weird, the, the weird, weird, the Chia pet hair. Yeah. yeah the hair. <laughs> that, that hair on the, on the, they did not know how to do hair in, in the seventies guys. Sorry. 
They did. They did what they could. They did what they could. They, yeah. they would do what they could. But it was basically like, it looked like, looked like a brown chia pet. Yeah, it was, it was very impressive. Fascinating. Very impressive. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, eh, you know, we that's a whole that's a whole we've talked about that sort of thing before where the the version that we're familiar with and yeah. whatever it changes. But um, but yeah, I mean, there's the cool thing about about a lot of this stuff is that it gives you great fr- friendships to celebrate. Um, which is something that, you know, even in the most serious of science fiction and comic books and horror and, and all the genre stuff, um, when you break down uh, the characters, a lot of times you end up remembering the most are the ones who are the, the, the friends in the show, the ones who are the, the great relationships with mm-hmm. the show, um, and how much that stuff actually makes it important. How much it matters that Luke and Han are friends. Yep. You know, I mean, Han came back for him. I mean, you know, ended differently entirely. You know, Han doesn't come back, and Luke doesn't fire the torpedo into the exhaust shaft, and the I Empire would, wins, man. <laughs> I would say that it probably still would have gone I in because I I have a feeling that Obi Wan was. Uh, guiding that torpedo a little bit. Yeah, but Luke might have died anyway. Well, that's true. You know, but uh, but luckily, you know, friendship is magic. Friendship <laughs> is magic. And that takes us right back to where we started. See how I did that? And here we are an hour and a half later. And, that's and how we do things. That's how we do things. All right, so let's, let's wrap it up there. Uh, those of you who have been in the chat tonight, thanks very much for your thanks, comments. Thanks, guys. Uh, and uh, don't forget, we have a new episode of Salacious Crumbs that just dropped today. And this coming Friday, we have uh, the Ranker Pit, which is the live Star Wars discussion program uh, that we've just started. And next week, we have a new episode of Triple Bites. And then the week after that, in two weeks from tonight, um, and, I, and I haven't really discussed this with very many people, two weeks from now is our milestone week. Salacious Crumbs hits episode 80. And if we time it right, Tartar Sauce hits episode 30. And okay. this show hits episode 200. In two weeks' time, <laughs> assuming that we do a show next week, <laughs> so that is the plan, and we're and we're recording we're recording a tardis starts tomorrow night. All right, so well, okay, so you're going to throw me off then, aren't you? Well, it doesn't uh, say we have to put it. I didn't say we have to release it <laughs> that this true. week. That's true. So yeah, so that's going to be that's going to be our our next couple of weeks is is going to be we're 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 doing big things here. I think maybe I don't know. We have we still haven't figured out our topic, but. We'll get there. Well, that's true. Well, we, you know, we've got a little, uh, we got a little bit of time. Yeah. All right, that's going to do it. Thanks very much for watching. If you are listening on the show, don't forget you can watch live on Monday nights uh, on Sci-Fi for Me TV, uh, and uh, of course, we do ask that you make sure that you are subscribed and that you have your notifications turned on so you know when we upload new content or go live with new shows. And uh, if you enjoy this kind of content, hit the thumbs up because that helps with the algorithm. Sure. Yeah. Um, we actually showed up 
and the suggested videos feed off of a Joe Rogan video a couple of weeks ago, which I thought was rather interesting. We'll take it. So uh, that that always helps because the YouTube algorithms are just all sorts of messed up. So any interaction, a comment, a like, a subscribe, a share, all of that stuff helps. So, um, all right. Thanks very much for uh, watching tonight. We will be back with another H2O podcast next week. Thanks, guys. Copyright 2019 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. 